husband or wife, or even choosing to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Last month, in December, unless you were very organised, which some of you probably are, you all had the choices of which present to buy for which relative. There's a quote here from, who knows, it's anonymous, life is all about making choices. Always do your best to make the right ones and always do your best to learn from the wrong ones. This morning we're going to look at the choices, the believers, after the ascension of Jesus that Simon looked at last Sunday. And in particular we're going to look at the area of choosing leaders. Bingo. And I've split the passage up into four sections. The first of all is the context of the choosing. What were they doing? Where were they? What were they thinking as they made the choice? The second one is... Peter stands up, he's a leader, and he stands up, and let's look briefly at Peter's leading. Then we're going to look at the fact that the scripture was being fulfilled, prophecy was being fulfilled as far as Peter was concerned, with the need to appoint and choose a new leader to be among the apostles. And finally, we're going to look at the steps they took to make the choice. So first of all, the context of the choosing. And uh, there are three small points I want to make about this. First of all, they were being obedient. In returning to Jerusalem, they were following the command that Jesus had given them, where he said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Isn't it so important that we follow Jesus' directions and commands to us. So often we can just concentrate on what it's all about love. And then we forget that there's this tight connection between love and following Jesus. Because it says in uh, John 14, verses 15 to 16, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. I find that interesting that there's this connection between obedience and love and between obedience and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Obedience should be a feature of our walk with the Lord. Sorry. The second thing was expectant of the coming promised Holy Spirit. The last words of people are often thought to be quite important, aren't they? And Jesus' words were no exception. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, as the apostles and the other believers gathered together in the upper room, I believe they were expectant that this promise was going to be fulfilled. These were believers who had been seeing Jesus crucified on the cross and perhaps they were wondering whether the authorities were coming after them. Yet, they had also witnessed the resurrection and ascension. And I believe they were now eagerly awaiting this promise from Jesus of the coming of the Holy Spirit of power from on high. I just wonder how expectant we are as a church for the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Are you expecting this morning even to meet with God? Because that's what we came to do. 
We come to meet with God. Do you want the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Then let's pay attention next to what the other thing they did. It says, they all joined constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In other translations, it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to a prayer. And then in the Amplified, it says, all these with one mind and one purpose were continually devoting themselves to prayer. This was the focus of what they were doing in that upper room. They were following Jesus' examples. Before he chose the original 12 disciples or apostles, Jesus spent the night, what doing? Praying to his father. If anyone didn't need to pray, it was probably Jesus. Yeah, he was human, but it was also divine. However, Jesus had such a pattern of prayer and dependence on his heavenly father that the one thing that his disciples and apostles asked him to do to teach them was teach us to pray. So perhaps it's no surprise that these believers set their hearts and minds in praying together constantly. Their prayer was persistent. They devoted themselves to set times of daily corporate prayer until God answered from heaven. In our last church, we had some friends from Nigeria come across and they said they always push. P-U-S-H. They pray until something happens. Keep at it. Keep persistent. Keep pushing into hearing and receiving from the Lord. If only we would as a group of believers believe the vital importance of united prayer. The Fulton Street prayer meeting that sparked a revival in America began with six people. So, you know, we've got 20 odd here this morning. Far more than six people. Within, and they began praying together. And within six months, there were 10,000 businessmen gathering daily for prayer in New York City. And within two years, one million converts were added to the American church. A.T. Pearson said... There has never been a revival in any country that has not begun in united prayer. And no revival has ever continued beyond the duration of those prayer meetings. So if we want to prepare for that hope of revival, of the cavalry coming. And that's exactly the thought I want to pass on to you. Remind you of Hugo Anson's words. Hold the fort. The cavalry is coming. And then he went on to say, keep praying was the first thing he said after that. Keep praying. Keep being kind. Keep believing. Keep worshipping. Keep the faith. Keep the lamp of the church burning. Hold the fort. Because the cavalry is on its way. So if we want to see expansion, revival, growth, all those things, we can't do it ourselves. We need God and we need to seek his face and we need to pray. The second thing section is just a little thought about Peter. Because we're thinking about choosing leaders. And one of the things that leaders do is they initiate. They kick things off. And so there they were praying and then Peter stands up. I just love Peter, don't you? Jesus walking on water. I love Peter at the back as well. 
is what is what Jesus walking on the water and what does Peter do jump out of the boat and start walking on water he's out there first ahead of all the other apostles he's the one when the disciples are asked the question who do you say that I am Simon Peter answered you are the Messiah the son of the living God and here he is again leading the believers about 120 in total including perhaps the 70 that were sent out by Jesus the 11 apostles and significantly don't forget that this time when society was very patriarchal there were women there as well there were women involved he stands up and points him in the next direction but just reflect for a minute on Peter it's true of a lot of leaders that God chose in the Bible because Peter is a flawed leader isn't he Peter made mistakes he said things he couldn't live up to when Jesus spoke about going to Jerusalem where he would suffer be killed and on the third day rise from the dead Peter took him aside hang on a minute Lord he began to reboot Jesus never Lord this shall never happen to you and Jesus turned to him and said to Peter get behind me Satan you are a stumbling block to me you do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns poor old Peter he thought he was trying to protect his Lord but he gets called Satan and of course when Peter has chance to stand up as the follower of Jesus in the courtyard after Jesus has been arrested what does Peter do? bottle it denies him three times other leaders chosen by God were flawed people Moses and David were both murderers yet they were used by God to rescue and to lead the nation of Israel David was even called a man after God's heart and he was a murderer because that goes on to the final point that although Peter was a flawed leader and had made mistakes made uh, things he said he couldn't live up to he was also a forgiven and a restored leader. He was used by God. Don't you just love that picture of that beach scene? There they are after the resurrection. They haven't caught anything all night. Jesus is on the beach. And he says, casting it out on the other side. And they haul in a load of fish. And they have breakfast on the beach with Jesus after the resurrection. And then... Jesus takes Peter to one side and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times, Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And after prophesying how Peter would die, Jesus simply says to him, follow me. And that's what Jesus did. move on to the third section which is the fulfilment of scripture a significant part of what Peter stands up and says to the believers is to point out that scripture was being fulfilled what had been predicted about Judas had taken place and what was needed at this time was also prophesied by scripture about replacing the apostle Judas was going to portray Jesus and die deserted. In these uh, texts, both from Psalms, that uh, Peter uses to point to what God wants, 
He assumes the reader's acquaintance with the uh, circumstances surrounding uh, Judas's death. A little bit squeamish, wasn't it? His intestines spilled out. <laughs> he got put in brackets. I don't know whether anybody know Greek. Perhaps John knows Greek. Do, was, there, was there brackets in Greek? I don't know whether there are brackets in Greek or not. No idea. But, you know, Luke, the translators, put this bit in brackets. You, di- you need to know the circumstances that Judas, in betraying Jesus, he fell from a ledge on the southern slope of the Valley of Hinnon, and he turned his property into cursed ground and it became a cemetery for the ceremonially unclean and it literally fulfilled the psalmist's curse may his place be deserted let there be no one to dwell in it and the second thing that was fulfilled was that a replacement for Judas was required may another take his place of leadership This gives the justification for the appointment of the 12th Apostle to replace Judas. It's worth noting the significance of the number 12 in scripture. Like our calendar year, the Hebrew year was also divided into 12 months. Israel had 12 sons. There were 12 tribes of Israel. It speaks really of the people of God. It speaks of the elective purposes of God. And so let's get down to the final bit, the meat of the choosing. The steps taken to choose. And the first one is, Peter outlined the qualifications. Peter now states what's needed. And the apostle must be one who had accompanied Jesus' disciples from the time of John the Baptist's ministry until Christ's ascension. One who's been a witness to the resurrection and has seen the risen Lord. In other words, he must have witnessed the events that would be covered in the early church's gospel preaching. Peter stresses that the candidate must have been with Jesus' entourage the whole time, a most necessary qualification. So today, when we come to choose potential leaders, have they spent time as Matthias and the son of Belsabus had done? Have they spent time with Jesus as their Saviour and Lord? They need to be people who really know the Lord when we're choosing leaders. It's interesting to note that neither here nor in the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy is there hardly any reference when choosing leaders to specific giftings. The emphasis is on valid experience and valid character. The only gifting mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 was the ability to teach. Primary importance is given to character traits, including being above approach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. After Pentecost, when the need was that uh, the apostles identified to select seven people, to help the widows that were not being treated properly in the distribution of food. The 12 apostles gave two other qualifications. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. I'd argue that being full of the spirit and wisdom are indispensable qualities for any potential leader. And finally, another key element of Christian leaders is that the leadership should be servant-led, servant leadership. Just as our Lord 
was a servant. Christian leaders are not to lord it over others or throw their weight around. Instead, they're called to serve and influence those they lead, not just by their words, but by their example. All Christian leaders are under shepherds who serve Jesus, our great shepherd, first and foremost. Instead of being self-confident, they're confident in God. Instead of making their own decisions, they seek to find God's will. And instead of being motivated by personal considerations, they are motivated by love for God and man. After James and John had asked Jesus if they could sit at his right and left hand, they had ambitions to be great leaders. When he brought them into the kingdom, Jesus did the following. He called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials, exercise over authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second thing they did was quite simple. We do it when we elect the CLT. They nominated what they thought were suitable individuals. So they had to look at these qualifications. Had they spent time with Jesus? Had they witnessed the resurrection? Had they been with Jesus from the very beginning? They looked at these things. And the, I don't think it was just the apostles, because Peter spoke to the whole 120. And they were asked to select people who were suitable, who met the qualifications. And two were chosen, Joseph Barsabas, who also had a Roman name, Judas, and Matthias. <laughs> We've got a Matthias present this morning. Perhaps he may be a man of God as well. Judas, called Barsabas, may have been Joseph's brother. So there was a Judas called Barsabas as well as a Joseph Barsabas. That's in Acts 15. Later tradition identifies Matthias as a missionary to the Ethiopians. And he may have met the qualifications by being one of the 70. However, both Joseph and Matthias, never mentioned again in scripture. <laughs> so, don't want to read into that really. The third thing they did again, what did they do? They prayed. Prayed again. So they nominated and then they prayed again. They asked God to in indicate which of the two candidates he had chosen to fulfill the position vacated by Jesus. With this prayer, in wording that echoes Jesus' initial calling of the 12, they show that they intend this new apostle to be chosen by Christ, just as the other 11 were. And then we come perhaps to the most difficult bit, the last bit. Finally, they, what they do seems rather strange, rather unscriptural. Are they gambling? What are they playing at? For some, the appointment of Matthias through the casting of lots was a bit hasty. Some people even, be, even believe that they shouldn't have done it and they preempted the later arrival of Paul as an apostle. However, for these Jews, the casting of lots was something that had been used on several occasions in Scripture to discover God's will. Examples of this include the allocation of territories in the Promised Land, the choice of the goat to be sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, the allocation of temple duties. 
And in the New Testament, you remember the clothes of Jesus were allocated by lot. The last occasion in the Bible on which the lot is, divine, is used to divine the will of God is this choice of Matthias. And it may be significant that this is the last time we read about the casting lots in the Bible, because what comes next? Pentecost. The Holy Spirit arrives, the promise comes, and things are changed. So in conclusion, Luke concludes by noting that the full complement of the 12 apostles has been restored. In principle, Matthias' election teaches us that restoration of integrity within the body of Christ is essential to preparation for revival. To replace Judas, they need a man of integrity. Wherever sin has created a breach and compromised the church's integrity, repentance and restoration needs to be pursued. If we want to see revival, to see the cavalry coming, then we need to be obedient to what God has revealed, repent of our sins, pray together both devotedly and persistently for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need to choose leaders who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Above all, we need to remain hopeful and expectant that God will honour his promises. And we need to seek to walk as a church in step with the Spirit. Amen. The next song I've chosen because of the verse. Can you just, sorry, the chorus. Can you just sling up the chorus?